Let us pray. Gracious God, we are in awe of your word and in awe of your presence in our lives and your presence throughout history and throughout humanity. God, help us to see something new in your word for us this day, that we might grow and be changed. Amen. This week's scripture lesson that Walt just read for us is from Genesis chapter 15, as he, as he said. And it's a recounting of a vision that Abram, and this again is before his name has been changed to Abraham. We've talked about this before. This is the early time, his, his name, his given name, Abram. And this vision comes to Abram when the word of the Lord came to him. That's how the vision comes. I've preached before a bit about Abraham and Sarah. Again, they're Abram and Sarai right now, but um, I, I think it helps to get a little bit of context to where this morning's text falls within the Abraham and Sarah text. When we first encounter Abram and Sarai, it's in chapter 12 of Genesis. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, again, the first book of the Bible, the first 11 chapters move very quickly from the two creation stories in the first, uh, in the first two chapters of, uh, of Genesis, and then the Adam and Eve uh, in the garden, the fall from the garden, and then the dramatic and tragic stories of their sons, of course, Cain and Abel. And then we have Noah and the ark, the great flood, the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. These are very rich texts. They're rich texts that, that lay what will be the foundation for the Jewish faith, for the Jewish religion. They do two things. They in part seem to explain some of the confusing mystery of God, but then they add to the confusing mystery of God. So there's this, this uh, dual function that can sometimes be a difficult dance, and you, you have to uh, read those chapters um, from a perspective that comes to it of trying to understand more of who God is by reading the text. I, I distinguish that from reading a, a, a history book that's going to tell me exactly what happened A, B, C, D, E, F, G. This is an attempt rather to help us to understand more again of this mystery of who, of who God is. And so in these opening chapters of the Bible... God is creating a lot. God's doing a lot of creating. And then creation, though that which is created, particularly the ones created in God's image, the people, the humans, us, creation seems to over and over again fail. Fail at understanding what it means to be made in the image of God. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are, are going to set forth a pattern that we're going to see throughout the Bible, throughout the modern era, the modern era as the church was growing and created, and then all the way into our contemporary life. It's a pattern, a pattern of God's faithfulness, God's continued faithfulness, and the continued nature of humanity toward sinfulness, that is, towards an attempt to separate ourselves from God or, or to do actions that would separate us, would seek to separate us from God. And it's the continued presence of God working within creation to restore and bring about order. And more than that, more than that, 
to reconnect humanity with God. So God is consistently reaching out to humanity. Humanity turns from God, and God reaches out again, reconnects again. One text describes it this way. Through the lens of these images, the God of the opening chapters of Genesis is portrayed as a relational God. Most basically, God is present and active in the world, enters into a relationship of integrity with the world, and does so in such a way that both the world and God are affected by that interaction. God has not chosen to remain aloof from creation, but to get caught up with the creatures in moving toward the divine purposes for the world. And so this is the backdrop of those first 11 chapters, the the foundation upon which the story of Abraham will be built. There's a fast-paced and rich genealogy that you can read in chapter 11 that leads us ultimately arrives at this otherwise indistinguishable man named Abram. From the outset in chapter 12, when we're introduced to Abram, God makes clear God's plan for Abraham and Sarah. This is what is written. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Those are the first words that Abram hears from God in Genesis chapter 12. There are two promises there that God makes. You're going to have land, and a lot of it, and you're going to have offspring, and a lot of them, right? A lot of of progeny. You're going to fill the land with your descendants. At this time, when God comes to Abram and makes this dual promise, he and Sarai are living a life that's pretty good. It's a life of relative luxury in a place called Haran. They're surrounded by family. Historians have been able to determine that during this time, most people didn't really leave their hometown. In fact, they lived within about equivalent of about 10 miles or so from their families. And Abram was there with his family, and and Sarai was there. Abram was a descendant of Noah. He was quite established where he was. The society in which they were living, though, was not a very godly one. In fact, it had grown far from the God that we, we know of as the God of the Old Testament. But they were in this land called Babylon, and polytheism was quite rampant. In fact, I was reading one ancient Near East historian who said that the texts from that time mentioned the names of at least 3,000 gods. So there were a lot of gods, and even accounting for the fact that some of the deities were given different names but were, were treated as the same ones, this his, same historian concluded that Uh, that more than 300 distinct gods were worshipped during that time. And so Abram and Sarai and their parents before them worshipped the many, many gods and idols of their day. The approach during this time, though, the treatment of gods during this time was basically one where people, especially with people with power and money, would spread their bets, their offerings, among the various gods. We'd say they wanted to have all their bases covered, right? They were, they were just making sure, keep all the gods happy because 
We don't know if they're real or not, but uh, we don't want to bet against them. But the interesting thing about all these gods is that they weren't gods who made promises. They weren't gods who made promises. They're gods who made demands. Gods who required something for something else, a quid pro quo. These gods were responsible for punishment and maybe for good if you did something they wanted or something right. So you can imagine in this backdrop that that Abram is a bit surprised when this God comes and the only thing that this God asks of him is to go. God says go. But then God doesn't just say go. God says, I'm going to do a lot more for you than I'm asking of you, right? God makes promises. I'm going to give you these two things that are unfathomable to him. I'm going to give you land and children and lots of descendants, Abram is comfortable there, though. He's powerful, and at the age of 75, he doesn't need God or anyone else making promises like this, promises that are going to totally upend his life, and yet that's exactly what God does. This inconvenience of God's call to Abram is made more significant by the fact that God doesn't tell him where to go, doesn't tell him where to go or what he's supposed to do. If it wasn't enough for God to call Abram away from his present life, from his comfort here, God tells Abram that he's supposed to take his wife and go. Go to the land that God will, at some point, show him. Go to the land that God will show him. And for some reason, we don't fully understand why, for some reason, Abram and Sarai do go. They listen to God's message for them, a message louder than their wealth and the position they have in society, and louder than the many gods and idols and the complacency of their known lives. They listen to God's message for them, and they go. They start their journey. But there's a major problem here that you probably already know with one of those promises in particular. Abram and Sarai do not have any children. These promises that God's made to Abram and Sarai seem particularly impossible, especially for them to be the ancestors of a great nation. It's impossible if you don't have children. I want to take a pause for a moment about and talk about Abraham a little bit. Abraham is probably one of the most revered people in church history and uh, in what I would call almost the lore of the church. If we asked who were the important people, Abraham and Sarah are probably going to come up in that conversation. There were VBS songs, right, and camp songs that we all knew about Father Abraham had many sons, right? I was not going to sing that to you, but that's how it is. And, then, and what's the next part of that? And many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Jim, Jim can sing. I, I can. But we, we learned these songs. We learned about Abraham. And our focus was always on, on Abraham kind of as an ideal. And when we hear these texts, I think sometimes we think, oh yeah, that's Abraham, the perfect one. Let him be the the one that exemplifies or models what it means to be a follower of God. And and all of this is for good reason, because the spoiler alert, of course, is that Abraham and Sarah, they do have the the many offspring, the descendants that God promised. And Abraham will eventually obtain a great deal of land, and the offspring will inhabit the land, and Abraham and Sarah's legacy will lead to the creation and establishment of the Jewish faith. This will all happen. God will do it all through these two. We wouldn't be reading, we wouldn't be reading this text if that didn't happen. 
but not yet. Abraham and Sarah do leave, as God tells them to do. They take a group of folks, Abraham takes this group, and they go to the land called Canaan. And when they get there, the Lord appears again and says, this is the spot, this is the place, this is the place that your people are going to inhabit, your offspring will inhabit. And so Abraham builds an altar there on that spot, and then something kind of perplexing happens. They get up and leave. They keep going. This is a point that isn't looked at a lot uh, in in the text because it happens so quickly. They leave. They continue on. But when they continue on, they run into trouble. They experience great famine, and, it, and everyone is in, in uh, dire straits. And so they decide to go down to Egypt in the hopes that it would be better there. But now they're in a foreign place. They're in a foreign land. And in his state of desperation, Abraham decides that he needs to fix this, or he's going to die, right? He's not going to have food. So... He decides to take his wife and pretend that his wife is his sister and give Sarah to the Pharaoh to take as Pharaoh's wife. There are a lot of bad things that we can do. I think this ranks at about the top. And I think sometimes Abraham is is criticized too much for it. Well, I don't think that. Uh, people think that. Um, they they want to ignore it. I can't ignore it. And they want to look at it and say, well, Abraham needed to stay alive in order to do what God told him to do. Okay. Abraham needed to keep everyone else alive. Okay. But no, it's not enough. For me, it's not enough. Because he hands her over and in exchange, he's given a load of sheep, oxen, donkeys, camels, and even servants. And again, there's some practical decision-making going on that Abraham has to do here, and he's right. He does survive because of this decision. But his wife also becomes a wife to the Pharaoh and all that comes with that. But God does have these promises that God has made, right? God has made these promises. And even though Abraham seems to have panicked, and made what I would call a morally compromised or perhaps even reprehensible decision to use his wife to save his own life, God doesn't let Abraham's failure end the story of God's promises. Remember what's going on here, here in Genesis. God creates, people mess up, God recreates. And so God sends some plagues to Pharaoh And Pharaoh is very confused. What has someone done here that's wrong? And the only thing he can tie it to is his new wife. And so he goes to Abraham, and Abraham tells the truth, and Pharaoh basically says, why would you have done that? And releases Sarah. The plagues go away. Abraham and Sarah are reunited. God recreated. So, It's time for more human messing up, isn't it? Abram and his nephew Lot, so Lot has gone with them. Abram and his nephew Lot, they're not getting along. They're not getting along, and and Abraham is getting frustrated with him. This traveling band has gotten a bit too large, and Abram decides it's time to break up the large caravan, and he sends Lot on his way. They go their separate ways. But Lot's army is small now. And so what happens? An enemy comes and overtakes them. And Abram hears of this. 
And it's hard to tell how enthusiastic he is about it, but he goes and they overcome the threat. They're reunited. They're reunited. His, his inability as a leader, though, obviously is part of what led to this separation. But God recreated again. God brought them back together. And in all of this, these ups and downs, and there's more within these chapters. If you want to have fun, go read them. There's more that happens, and there's going to be more. So we're in chapter 15 here. There's going to be more after it. But in all of this, in all of this that's happened, all of those things that I just listed, there's still no offspring at this point. There are these lingering promises of God, and Abram is confused. And if the confusion wasn't enough, he's probably got an angry wife too, frankly, a bitter wife. He's got a bitter nephew in Lot. After these things, this is when we come to this morning's text. In fact, that's how the text started. I don't know if you heard it when Walt said it at the beginning. After these things. So now you know the things the things that happened. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. After these things, after these things, God comes and God makes the two promises again. Remember, he already made these promises before. I'll give you land and I'll give you offspring. Descendants that are as numerous, he says now, as numerous as the stars. In our Bible study this week, it was pointed out that in another part, the promise is as numerous as the dust In another part, as numerous as the grains of sand. And Abram has heard all this before, right? He's heard it before. He's heard it before these things, and now here after these things, he's hearing it again. And the promise comes again, and Abram is confused. He's confused, and and I read a little bit of defeat into it too. It's like, I did all this. I left. I did what you wanted. After these things, here we are again. Here we are again. It's hard to understand, it's hard to understand how these promises could be fulfilled. As I look around the world today, it is hard after these things to hear the promises of God. As I look at images coming out of Ukraine, stories of children traveling hundreds of miles by train on their own to escape death, knowing they won't see people ever again, they love. As I hear stories from people who have escaped other atrocities, some decades and a lifetime ago, people for whom these crimes of today are bringing back terrifying memories that they had buried long ago with the people they loved, after these things, two years of lost events, lost experience, lost lives, and lost innocence, in the world with this pandemic. Two years of tension and conflict that has spilled into families and friendships and churches after these things. The things of your lives that I know some of the stories, but I don't know half of them. The things of loss, of grief, of pain. After these things, And things that are coming down the road, the things that give us fear, that haven't even happened yet. These things 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The Lord said, fear not, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. After these things, the word of the Lord came. After these things, in the midst of these things, through these things, God's promises will spring forth. God's promises will come out of dry ground. After these things is precisely when comes the newness of God's recreation, God's ongoing recreation, God's surprising recreation. After these things is when life springs. After these things, after these things, when we will be led by young children who show us how to love the world. When we can't even see a path to do that sometimes. But not only when children will show us how to love the world by creating and selling and inviting others to be a part of loving others, but showing us and teaching us that we too need to be ones who do that. After these things, God's recreation, where God surprises God's people because God keeps God's promises. After these things. A lot will happen after these things for Abraham and Sarah. But the hard part or the hard reality of this story is that there's going to be a lot more pain. It gets worse. If you thought it couldn't get worse from what you heard after these things, it gets worse. There will be more pain, more things to come. The image of the animals being split in two, did you catch that in the text today? It's kind of graphic, right? But this idea is part of a covenant. It's like a super promise. And the way it worked is you'd cut the animals, put them in half, and then the person making the agreement would walk between the cut pieces of animal. And in our text today, at the end, there's this mysterious fire pot. Go back and read it. I'm not going through the whole text, but at the end, there's this fire pot that goes, and the smoke goes through between the animals, and that is God's presence making the promise. The one making the promise goes through the, the animals. You've heard the phrase, cut a deal, right? We're going to cut a deal. That's where this comes from. You cut the animals, you go through, you make the deal. This is a super promise. Super promise. But Abraham and Sarah need it again. They get it later. In fact, they get it more than once later. God needs to tell them again. And they make more mistakes, they, they have more problems, more disorder, more failures, and God continues over and over again to recreate. But right here in this text, there's something powerful that I couldn't ignore. Abraham is struggling to understand how God will do all these things that God promises. He struggles to understand it. And I hope you can take some comfort in that. I hope you take comfort in knowing that Abraham, Father Abraham, the one we revere and look up to, I hope you take comfort that he struggled in understanding how God's goodness would come. I do. I do for sure take comfort in that. 
because I struggle with it. I wonder if you ever struggle with this, with understanding how God's goodness will come. But, but Abraham, our text says, very quickly it changes, and our text says Abraham believed the Lord. But digging a little deeper, this word belief, it meant something different, a little bit different. It might help to have a little color on this to say a better way to understand it might be that he trusted God profoundly. The idea of, of belief really meant a profound degree of trust, trusting profoundly. Even when Abraham can't see the path forward, he trusts God profoundly. He trusts God, and he continues to allow God to recreate. Even in the midst of his failures, he trusts profoundly, even when he can't fully understand what that even means. What it means when he can't dream or even comprehend. I find myself there sometimes, unable to even comprehend what it means to trust profoundly. When he can't dream after these things, somehow even then, he trusts profoundly because he trusts a God who is worthy of that trust. And trusting God, he dares to press forward. He dares to try. He dares to love, to dream about how he can live, how he can live as though God is indeed worthy of that trust. Friends, may we too learn to trust profoundly to learn who this God is that we are called to trust profoundly. And may we learn to dream about God's recreation in a broken world. May we be led by the youngest among us, the ones who teach us to trust profoundly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.